Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. On Saturday night at the Albite Stadium, England take on France in what is arguably the biggest test that Gareth Southgate has faced as manager. Despite a World Cup semi-final and a Euros final, there is a lingering sense that we still don't know quite how good this England team is. Well, we will find out today. I'm Adam Leventhal. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. play France who are a fantastic team and we're aware of all of their attacking players and we're aware of the quality of the whole squad. Allez, 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 Kylian Oh là 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 Kylian Mbappé, 75e minute, le génie vient de frapper So I'm joined this morning at the Souk Wakif which is not the Souk Wakif that we normally see before us. We have rainy ground, cloudy sky, cool temperatures. It all feels very English, doesn't it, Jack? Advantage England? <laughs> well, I don't know. It's, it, it feels We've, like uh, that, it? When we arrived in Qatar, what, three, three and a bit weeks ago, it was uh, really bakingly hot. And now it's just, I mean, look, it's not like English temperatures at this time of year, but it is kind of recognisably English weather. So I wonder if this is a, uh, you know, an early, an early moral victory for the England team, perhaps. Just before we started recording, I balked at something that you said. And we mentioned it there in the intro, that this is the biggest game that England have faced under Gareth Southgate. You think this is bigger than the Euros final? Bigger than the yeah, World Cup semi-final? Yeah, I think this is the biggest game England have had, I can say at the very least, since the quarter-final against Brazil in 2002. It's, I think it's bigger than the semi-final against Croatia in 2018 because I think England went to the 2018 World Cup with a bit of a... I mean, that game felt like a bit of a free hit. Like England went to the 2018 World Cup and their goal was win a knockout game. And then they won two and they lost to Croatia, but they didn't have expectations of winning the World Cup. Even in the Euros, I mean, the final, against we- the final against Italy at Wembley was a huge game. But it was still a Euros rather than a World Cup. And it's, I think because of the, cir- the unique circumstances around the tournament, maybe this is a factor of COVID, I didn't feel like it felt as big as a World Cup would. Whereas this game against the reigning world champions in a World Cup quarterfinal, with frankly, with the draw opening up, I know we always say this, but it is true in this case, I think, um, you know, I don't think, I think whoever wins this game will be the best team left of the competition. I certainly think they're better than Argentina and Croatia and Portugal and Morocco. So I think that whoever wins this game will be favourites to win the World Cup. And so I think, I think given this sense of progress and climax to the England team at the moment, you know, this has been work, Southgate's been working this for six years. I, I really do think this, this is, this game is that big. 
So it's it, it's that big because of the from what you're saying, it's the it's the gateway to it, the the opportunity, but also the expectation, which we hear a lot from this this current England group. We are here to win it. I know it's almost as if, well, of course you're here to win it. You wouldn't be there would be no point being here unless you sort of were thinking that you could. But that they've been drilling that into every message they've been uttering here in, in Qatar. Yeah, yeah. They came here to win it. They didn't go to Russia to win it. You know, I think Harry Harry Kane was talking about this in the press conference yesterday. He said, you know, of course we you know of course we believe that we could win, but we um yeah, the mentality is different this time. The England are much better than they were four years ago. Like if you if you look at the if you look at the, the team they had in the semi final against Croatia four years ago, they had Deli Ali and Jesse Lingard in midfield. Like even if you look at that squad, they had a lot of very good Premier League players, but not really kind of super elite players. You know, they had Vardy, Welbeck, Cahill, Phil Jones, Danny Rose. You know, in the sort of back end of his career. Uh, they had Ruben Loftus-Cheek. They had Fabian Delph. You know, all very, very good players in their own way. And, you know, very they built a really strong camaraderie. And some of them played pretty well at that World Cup. But it's not really comparable to Phil Foden, Jude Bellingham, Mason Mount, Jack Grealish, Declan Rice. Like, the guys who've come into this squad having not been in the squad four years ago. So I do think, yeah, I, th- I do think England are just a much better team than they were four years ago. We heard from Gareth Southgate yesterday evening, and you mentioned Harry Kane as well. He spoke. I mean... I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to be too down on the whole thing. But often when they both speak, it is rather beige. It's it, there isn't much sort of um, oomph that you sometimes sort of jealously see from other press conferences that we've we've seen. You know, especially some of the South American press conferences, which which turn into almost like a a, a festival of football, even at, at press conferences. But is that is that almost to be respected that they are keeping a lid on this? this sort of expectation that will be will be sort of permeating through from from back at home but i suppose they they just want to shield themselves from it and just try and focus on the next game however boring that is yeah i think england have been very good at that they're very they really reflect the approach of the manager i think in their emotional steadiness you know they don't get too down after a defeat they don't get too high after a win and southgate gets pelters for that i mean i remember during the nations league you know i think it was the I think it was when they lost to, lost in Milan, maybe in September, and South and they were they nobody thought they played well, and then Southgate came out and said, "Oh, actually, you know, I didn't think we were that bad today," and everybody gets very upset. We had it again actually in the group stages uh, after the nil against the USA, when again Southgate came out and said, "I thought we actually defended really well, and there's positives to take," and everyone was kind of tearing their hair out in anguish, like wishing that Southgate would be more visibly upset about the performance. Um, so I think that. And that is something that Southgate's really imprinted on the whole England team, is that is that emotional steadiness. I, th- I think that's really valuable. Like if you look at you know successful teams, you know Spain 2010 very emotionally steady, Germany 2014 very steady, even France 2018 have this kind of Didier Deschamps has kind of introduced this sort of unflappability to France. Like they're very, they don't get too up or too down. And I just wonder if you can maybe draw a bit of a contrast between that and say Brazil, for example who are, um, you know, an incredibly, you know, when they're, when they're on it, they're, they play with so much emotional energy and passion and freedom and ex- freedom of expression and all that. And it's wonderful to watch. But then when something goes wrong, like we saw yesterday, it all collapses. It's an interesting one because I suppose you could say the same for, um, for Argentina, 
they are, they are driven on emotion, driven on almost like on a higher purpose that they have to get Messi over the line. But then at the same time, the the Dutch last night in that thrilling game, they were they were being fueled by emotion. So it's it, it's quite a difficult one to to pick out whether you can be too reserved. And one thing that, that did actually make me think yesterday from that news conference with Gareth Southgate on that topic, that, and I found it quite interesting, it was quite a charming moment from him, that he said when asked about what happens just before they go out onto the pitch, what will be your sort of rousing, maybe Churchillian speech that you will come up with. And he basically said that, no, I learned a long time ago that too many managers when I was a player would say something and that would almost knock me off kilter. So I don't say anything and I leave it to Harry Kane. That, it, was quite, I, it was quite a pure moment to that whole yeah, thing. Yeah, I, th I think that really reflects, I think, South, I think a big part of what Southgate's approach has been, and we've seen this all the way through since he took over, is it's about handing agency back to the players. He doesn't want to tell the players what to do all the time. He wants the players to make the right decisions. He doesn't want to... He doesn't want to have to do the motivational stuff an hour before, half an hour before kickoff, you know, trying to get them in the right frame of mind. He wants he wants that to come from the players, and so that you know it's very. For example, lots of internal decisions within the England group are made by uh, the sort of senior players, which is basically Harry Kane, Jordan Henderson, who's effectively the vice captain, Raheem Sterling, Harry Maguire, the guys that've been there for a long time and who. Um, have a lot of decision-making authority, and Southgate doesn't want a very Southgate doesn't want too much of a kind of top-down approach to this sort of thing. He doesn't want it to be like you know the Fabio Capello era, for example, where everything was driven entirely by the whims of the manager, um, and the players didn't really have much of a voice. So, I think that Southgate's approach to who talks before the game, like in one sense, it's quite trivial, but in another sense, it's reflective of like a broader a broader strategic goal of Southgate and something which I actually think he's done really well in. And I, do, and I do feel like the England players have a lot of ownership over this England team. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. Just in terms of the... The tactical side of things let's get stuck into what is ultimately the most important rather than what who's going to shout what prior to the the game we haven't even mentioned the thing that everyone's been banging on about Kylian Mbappe against Kyle Walker are we overly are we overly obsessed with this almost as if as and we spoke about it on um, the the World Cup radar which is a, a show that we do on on social media um, 
Peter Drury was basically saying, the commentator, that it's going to turn into a series of 100-meter races, basically, between, between those two. On that, who wins? That's the most important, that's the most important uh, I think question. I, I think I'm going to start with your previous question, yes. which was, are we, are we obsessing with it too much? Yes. And I think, as someone who spent all of yesterday writing a big article about Carl Walker versus Kylian Mbappe, <laughs> the one battle that's going to decide the World Cup, I can safely say, yes, we absolutely are. Mm. Football doesn't work like that. Mm. Football's not a one versus one game. No. It's a, it's a team sport. But let's get to the point, but important that, point. <laughs> Who would win? Well, if it was. in the last 16 games, Kylian Mbappe's top speed was 35.3 kilometers per hour. Carl Walker's top speed was 34.4 kilometers an hour, which means that Kylian Mbappe is faster than Kyle Walker. Ah, right. Sad to say. So which isn't we might as well go home now, Adam. Yeah. The World Cup's over. Well, it does feel like that. Um, but it, that's not really surprising, is it? It, there's been no, a lot of I mean, a lot of sort of weight put on the fact that Kyle Walker, who's recently only just come back, um, would be able to just sort of keep tabs on one of the best yeah. players and also, of a know, generation. Let's be honest, thirty-four point four kilometers an hour is pretty quick. It's quicker than me. I struggle to yeah. hit. I struggle but to I've get seen that, you on a treadmill, quick. and yeah, I, yeah, I would yeah. like to see you as quite a get third to thirty-four point four kilometers yeah. an hour. But That's true. Maybe next time. Yeah. Quite. Um, well, look, I think that. I actually, someone who does know a little bit more about this than me is Mauricio Pochettino, yeah. uh, athletic columnist. And I was speaking to him the other day about exactly the, the, this point. And I said, Mauricio, Carl Walker is quick enough to stop killing Mbappe. And he said, It's not only about to, to Kai Walker, characteristics of Kai Walker. I think Killian is difficult to stop because the 1v1, one one, the, the, how fast he is. It's not easy, but I think it's about to. Um, it's a it's a player that you need to isolate and you need to put in uh, areas far to the to the box because yeah. when he's inside to the box, is is so is so um, uh, dangerous. And I think um, you always will need two players because one and another supporting. It's not as simple as saying Walker's quick, therefore we'll be okay. Yeah. So ultimately, try not to play a, a really high line and allow balls to go in behind because he's ultimately going to win yeah, that race. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think there's also, you know, can they stop off the supply line to him somehow? Can they cut it off at source? Easy, probably easier said than done. Or the, the other theory is, you know, Mbappe doesn't like to defend. You know, if, let's, say England, let's say Luke Shaw's got the ball and England's driving forward down our left, France's right. Mbappe is not going to be running back to get in line with the rest of his, yeah. his midfield. He's going to stay loitering up the, higher up the pitch. This is what coaches call cheating. Like he's not, going to be, he's not going to be dropping back. He's going to be there waiting in case there's a transition and he can attack. So what England need to do is they need to make him think twice about doing that. They need to make him do some defending because the more energy he spends running back, the less energy he's got to spend running forward. Now... How exactly do you do that? Well, you could play, uh, you could attack that space in behind him, you know, really attack Hernandez, the France left back, who'll be playing behind Mbappe, uh, maybe with a Saka or someone like that on England's right, so much that Mbappe thinks, or maybe Deschamps would say to Mbappe, you've got to go back and defend Killian. You can't just, you can't just loiter upfield the whole time. 
Uh, so Steve Holland, the England assistant manager, talked the other day about a conversation he once had with Jose Mourinho about how do you stop Dani Alves? Do you stop Dani Alves by playing a, like a really defensive player on the left wing to track him all the way? Or do you stop him by playing Cristiano Ronaldo yeah. up on the left and giving Dani Alves something to worry about in the other direction? So it's what he called the cat and mouse game. So I think that is, that's going to be part of England's thinking today. Can they give Mbappe something to worry about the other end of the pitch? And in doing so... L- limit his ability to make those attacking runs someone as you were talking about that just walked past in a Kylian Mbappe shirt walked across your it wasn't path. a great man himself was it I, it I don't think so I don't think it was um, but just as you were talking about a weakness in the French side a Kylian Mbappe shirt walked in front of you so I don't know I don't know what to think you mentioned there about obviously the structure of the team and let's let's be brutally honest however interesting and and important your pieces about the battle between Walker and and Mbappe um, which everyone should go and read it is about a team and it is going to ultimately be how England set themselves up do you see that it is going to be a change do you see that it's going to be a a back three I think it's likelier to be a weirdly I think it might be likelier to be a change in uh, a change in system than a change in personnel I've got this theory and this is probably going to be complete nonsense that they might keep the same theory, keep the same people and play a different system, maybe with because they can. If you, there were moments in that Senegal game where they basically moved into a back three with Saka as the right wing back and Shaw as the left wing back, and it did occur to me at the time: is this a kind of anti-France policy that they're trying out? The malleability, exactly. Yeah, yeah. so they can keep keep the same players, different system. Um, now, I, I think to me. I mean, look, the, the alternative is go to a back three and bring in Trippier as the right wing back. But if you do that, you're, you're losing an attacking player. I mean, maybe they could lose one of the three central midfielders. Maybe they could lose Saka. Maybe they could lose Foden. But I don't know. May, may, maybe that tactical flexibility is a way to, um, you know, that, if you have Saka as a right wing back, that's exactly what I was talking about. That's causing problems behind Mbappe, forcing Mbappe to go and run backwards. It was interesting when Gareth Southgate was speaking yesterday about almost like the preparation for this and and Steve Holland as well he, he spoke earlier on in the week they've had what six game uh, six days in between these games so they've had a lot of thought time um, ahead of this meeting but it goes further back than that it, it almost feels like they've been planning for this moment for what four, four years or yeah you know whenever the but specifically to face France you know, almost thinking ahead, one step ahead, one step ahead and watching their games. And Steve Holland, I think, said that it's, it, it feels like a 50-50 game, which I don't know if that's just a turn of phrase or, or maybe it's a little bit optimistic because I think that France still come into this as, as favourites. But they, are, they feel like or they're appearing like they are ready for this. And it will be fascinating to see if they've got something up their sleeve. I definitely feel like they are, they feel like they are ready for this. You know, they've been building up for six years they this is really the last thing they've got to do is they've shown they could win knockout games they've now won England hadn't won a knockout game since the 2006 World Cup when Southgate took over they've now won six but they the best team they beat they beaten in those six knockout games was Joachim Löw's Germany in the last game of Löw's tenure seven years after after they won the World Cup so Germany were very much on the decline by then and I mean, frankly, it looks like they're still in a transitional phase under Hansi Flick. So they haven't really... But what they haven't done is beaten a top team in a massive game yeah. at 
who are still really good. And I think France are still really good. They only won the World Cup four years ago. They've obviously gotten a lot of new young players. Yeah, they've lost some of the spine in that team. There's no no Pogba this time, no Kante, no Titi. You know, some other players are not quite as good as they were. But they've got a lot of great young players. So it is the... Um, it, 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 England are being asked to do something that they've kind of lit, almost literally never done before in this game, which is why it's so exciting. In terms of the 50-50-ness of it, I don't think it's far off 50-50. I think that maybe if I really had to bet, I'd probably say France, but then I might be saying that as a kind of emotional hedge rather than because it's it's like practical or realistic. I actually, The more I think about it, the more I have a, a sneaking feeling that England, England should be in the advantage here. Just, I think they're just a more kind of rounded team with better options on the bench as well. Yeah, it is. It, it, you know, it's the morning of the game, and we're just sort of trying to wrap our heads around it a little bit and to, and to try and sort of work out whether this is going to be the day. Like you say, where they ultimately, what you're saying there is exceed expectations because you know the age-old question is, well, this is this is the big chance, this is the big opportunity to, you know, do what was done back in 1966 what do you think might be the game changing element I don't know I mean in terms of key I mean obviously stopping Mbappe is a factor equally I think they'll know that if they you know France have got other players who can score goals it's not just about Mbappe like Griezmann's been fantastic in a sort of creative midfield role so far Ousmane Dembele doesn't have the same track record as Mbappe but is himself an incredibly talented player like he's very very quick he's very direct he goes past people and England won't want to you know they won't want to deploy all their resources to uh, combat the threat of Mbappe and and leave them exposed elsewhere so Declan Rice is going to have a hugely important role uh, at the base midfield trying to shut down Griezmann Um, so it's going to be you know it's going to be I think it's going to be a bit of a tactical chess game in that sense I think England are going to have to be England are going to have to be very, very conscious of France's threats and position their players in such a way as to stop Griezmann, Mbappe and Dembele doing the damage. Well, also, I think England will be aware that they've got a lot of, you know, threats of their own. Like, England, England are getting closer, I think, to finding an attacking method that really, really works for them. Like, if you saw the way they played against Senegal, where Henderson and Bellingham breaking through the middle was fantastic. Foden and Saka, who I think will probably start again today are very dangerous players. And if you've got Harry Kane kind of at the centre of it, you know, getting the ball into his feet and then picking passes forward, he's very difficult to stop. You know, in Pochettino's column the other day, he talked about exactly this, about um, how good Kane is in that space and how France are really going to have to shut him down. And also how if Kane gets the ball in that area, Pochettino said that the French defensive line is going to have to drop straight away because otherwise they're going to leave space in behind them, which Foden and Saka can pile into. You may hear the uh, the music in the background. I mentioned that it feels it feels very sort of Moroccan-driven. The Souk Wakif this morning, uh, some Moroccan fans uh, draped in a in a big Moroccan flag have arrived with a a boombox uh, playing playing music and uh, just speaking to. Uh, some people that are gathered on a table in one of the, the cafes opposite us and just uh, capturing the moment. And then you contrast that with some England fans who I've just seen walking very peacefully into the, uh, the Souk Waukif, pondering their breakfast options. Uh, it, it was a very sort of <laughs> contrasting image from, from, the two, from the two nations' fans. Um, one is, at this stage, and we hope it will be for England later, just slightly more vibrant uh, at this time of the morning. Let's deal with the with the what ifs. 
And this was something that it wasn't really raised in the news conference yesterday. And I thought that Gareth Southgate sort of skirted around it and, and spoke very much about being excited about playing in this quarterfinal. But I was sat there thinking, wow, the pressure must be immense, knowing full well what the, what the verdict might be if England do fail once again. We have, to, we have to sort of contemplate it and hopefully that will be the driving force for, for, from an English perspective that they think, right, this is our opportunity. We have to, we have to break down this, this barrier. Would it be, uh, yeah, I was thinking about this, how, to, uh, how appropriate would it be to use the F word? Would it be a failure if they lose? Losing a World Cup quarterfinal to the reigning world champions who've got the best player in the world in Kylian Mbappe. I, I mean, look, people would, be, people would be very upset if England lost. Like, there's no question that the players would be devastated if England lost because they've worked so hard to get to this point. It's not a, you know, they, if they won, then they'd be in a very good position. They're in four years' time. I mean, who knows where things will be in four years' time. It's highly unlikely that Gareth Southgate will be manager in four years' time. I don't think Kane, you know, Kane might still be as good, but some of these other players will probably be past their peak a bit in four years' time. So look, and they want to win. So yeah, the players will be very upset. Take a step back from it. Would it be a, would it be a kind of scandal or a disaster or a shit or a failure to lose a World Cup quarterfinal to France? No, I don't think it would be. I think it would be, you know, something that, hap something that happens in tournament football. You get beaten, you get beaten by good teams that have really good players. So. I uh, yeah, that's kind of that. But then who knows? I mean, who who knows how we're going to feel at midnight tonight if England have lost? I mean, it, it'll kind of depend as well on the circumstance of the game. Yeah, our Moroccan friends are are back, as you can probably hear. They are ready for the uh, the challenge of um, Portugal later on today. Um, just another word on on Gareth Southgate finally, and it was interesting hearing from from Didier Deschamps about almost him needing more respect. And do you think that, obviously within the group, there, there, there appears to be that because they are sticking together and they seem to be calmly progressing through the tournament. We will see what happens later on this evening. But do you think that he doesn't get enough respect in general? Yes, definitely. I think that he has done an amazing job. He's done, like, like I said earlier, didn't win a knockout game between 2006 and 2016. England were like deep underachievers in international tournaments forever, really, or certainly for 30 years, 50 years, before Southgate took the job. He has found a method to, get England, to make England successful in tournaments. He's brought consistency, kind of intelligence, emotional level-headedness, uh, patience, tactical flexibility, and, you know, he's... England, England hadn't got to a World Cup semi-final since 1990. They hadn't got to a tournament final of any kind since 1966. He's done both of those. And uh, the, I mean, I know that people always, will always find stuff to beat him with, with you know, are they, but they don't win with enough style or they, they, can't, they don't win every single game. But I, I think the criticisms of Southgate are actually incredibly flimsy compared to his achievements in the role which are huge and re and really kind of kind of concrete his achievements are concrete you know getting to a semi world cup semi-finals are concrete achievements so he's getting to the final of the euros so yeah i think i don't think he gets nearly enough respect and one final quick point i suppose it's it 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 should also make a difference how england go about their business this evening as well because the narrative has been too negative and there have been some pretty sort of low ebb performances 
in halves of games, even if they have gone on and, and won. Maybe Iran is the is the the game which was balanced throughout. That it, there was a lot of verve. But thinking about the Wales game, the USA game, the Senegal game, at times you were watching it and going, "This is this is pretty low end." Um, but they obviously came through it. It's obviously a different challenge against France. You can't be gung ho, but it would be it would be nice to see them take the game sort of spiritually to to France in a way. I actually don't agree with that at all. Okay. I think that uh, international tournaments are not like one. There's very little good football in international tournaments by Premier League standard, and the successful teams in international football in international tournaments often don't play well. You know, look at the other two semi-finalists. Croatia have genuine... The only time Croatia played well was when they played against a completely out-of-their-depth Canada. Yeah. I was at their games against Japan, Japan, where they were pretty poor. Morocco, where they were very poor. Argentina, the other semi-finalists in that half of the draw, lost to Saudi Arabia and have frankly been unconvinced... You know, they almost didn't beat Australia. They needed penalties to beat the Netherlands. Like, they're not... <laughs> they haven't actually been that good. Nobody plays that well. And so, yeah, England have been kind of... At times, England have been boring, and at times, England have been a bit sloppy, I think, actually. I think that's really the one thing that Southgate will worry about. Is not He won't care that they haven't been exciting. He will care they have been a bit sloppy at times, but I don't think that England need to go gung-ho. I think England are actually perfectly attacking enough. This is not a... This is not an unattacking England team. They're playing. They're playing a back four, not a back five. They've got Bellingham next to Rice instead of Phillips. They're they're getting attacking players in in and around Harry Kane. So yeah, I'm not worried about personally. I'm not worried about the extent to which England are attacking at all. Jack, thank you very much indeed. Um, we've been sat here this morning at the Souk Waqif and we've been talking about football, and we've been talking about games and reflecting on tactics and things like that. But to be brutally honest. Even though we have been seeing sort of life around us and, and fans in very sort of vibrant costumes, we've had our minds on something that happened yesterday evening, which is very, very sad indeed. And the, the sad loss of the US soccer writer Grant Wall, which has been keenly felt by everyone uh, within the, the press tribunes, um, you know, those were, that were there at the, at the game last night between Netherlands and Argentina. Um, and we would like to send our condolences to his family, his friends, and all the countless fans in the United States who followed his work over the years, because he is, and he was, a hugely respected football writer who, who championed the sport, um, maybe you know, against the tide in, in the US. Jack, if you'd like to say a few words in, in memory of him. Yeah, I mean... I think Grant was someone who was just incredibly committed to his work and his values. You know, he was a um, he was an incredibly hardworking journalist, and also someone who was very determined to speak up about the causes that were important to him. You know, he, f- football in connection with human rights, women's football as well as men's football. He was a vet. He he was completely tireless and dedicated to what he believed in. And I, I'd be, you know, lots of other journalists who I know here knew him much closer on a personal level than I did. But I, I've been struck even this morning just reading the words of 
people who knew Grant and loved him. Uh, I just want to read one tweet by a colleague of ours, John Muller, who's one of our analytics writers based in the US. And he wrote on Twitter this morning, I'm grateful to Grant Wall for helping me make it as a soccer writer, but I'm more grateful that his urge to help people who could use his help extended all throughout soccer and way beyond it. I hope we live up to that. Yeah, he was a champion of the sport, um, and we send our condolences once again to his friends, his family, his, uh, his fans out there across the world, and that comes from everyone at The Athletic. We'll see you on the next episode. The Athletic.